Warning, the following podcast may contain material that is inappropriate for listeners that are under the age of 18, are easily offended, or get annoyed listening to the rantings of holier-than-thou-know-it-alls that are anything but. Welcome back to the Anime World Order podcast. This is our, hopefully by the time this comes out, our first episode of the new year. Introductions are in order. I am Daryl Surratt. I am Gerald Rathgold. And I am Clarissa. And we've got a very special guest for this episode. I think we finally completed the uh, Space Fanzine Yamato trifecta now. <laughs> because with us is OG gangsta fan who, uh, you know, lived the dream out in Japan. Ardeth Carlton is our guest today. <laughs> well, I'm Ardeth Carlton. I'm coming to you live and direct from Japan. Top of a little... Room built on top of an old shut-down fish store here in Tatebayashi in Gunma Prefecture. And that's that's me. <laughs> well, that's not just you. Otherwise, that'd be a quick podcast. But I guess to get things started, I suppose, like, where do we want to begin? I suppose we'll go all the way back to, I guess, when you were a kid and maybe go into how you maybe first discovered Japanese animation and, and when this was thereabouts. Oh, gosh. Well... When I was a little kid, I really liked adventure cartoons, like <laughs> way, way back, like Crusader Rabbit and stuff. And uh, one time, oh gosh, I guess I was probably about five or so. This was probably about uh, 1968 or so. My dad had gone to visit an Air Force buddy of his and brought me and my little brother Todd along. We were in back of a couch playing with our little plastic animals. And I hear them having a discussion. They're watching TV. And... My dad's buddy says, you know, I don't think these Japanese cartoons are meant for kids. And, you know, we had to know what that was about. So, you know, we both take up from over the back of the couch, and there's this black and white thing on TV. A lot of things were black and white back then. But uh, <laughs> I think, in retrospect, it was 8-Man. And huh. so we're like, huh, it's a cartoon and it's not for kids. Ooh, we want to know about that. But, you know, there was nothing like that on TV once we got back home. But later on, this was when I was in the second grade, the kids in my second grade class started talking about this show they were watching on TV called Kimba the White Lion. We didn't have cable TV. <laughs> so the kids are all talking about this, and I'm trying to figure out what they're talking about because we don't see anything like that on our TV. And it turned out that it was on cable. It was on WKBD in Detroit, which was not a channel that we got. But I really, really wanted to know more. And so our neighbor had cable TV. So one day she was babysitting us and we were like, can we watch TV? And she turned it on and there was Astro Boy. And after that was Kimba. And this episode of Kimba, it was unlike anything I had ever seen. And this was coming off the Astro Boy episode, which was like, oh, wow, he's got no feet. He's got jets and he's flying around. This is so alien. Wow. And then after that came the color Kimba episode. It was about this plant this plant had sprung up in the jungle and it could kind of like secrete this perfume into the air and it made the animals go crazy and it's grabbing them up and it is going to eat them. 
And this was a really far cry from Bugs Bunny and Scooby-Doo. And my, my jaw is just in my lap going, what will happen? Because they're an actual danger. And I'd never seen anything like that before. So I was just captivated by this and just, just thunderstruck that something like this existed. And so every day after that, we're like, can we go to, to Mrs. Anderson's house? We want to get babysat again, please, please. And that was how I was able to watch Kimba, partly because we couldn't see it without, you know, great effort. It made it all the more captivating. You wondered, what's going on in that show? I want to know more. We didn't actually get cable until, oh gosh, I guess this was 1978. But in between, we could see Speed Racer. Speed Racer would air on a local channel. And so we'd see Speed Racer. But that was kind of, I mean, Kimba had been serious. But Speed Racer had more of a, they aren't being entirely serious about this. And so me and Todd would kind of make fun of it. But then in 1978, we finally got cable. And they started to show commercials for this show they were going to start broadcasting called Battle of the Planets. And it looked just like Speed Racer. It's like, oh, man, it's more of that Speed Racer thing. Uh, but we started watching it. And I really started to like it. It took a few episodes to grow on me. But after that, it was like, wow, I want to know more. I want to know more. And by then, I could figure out, yeah, the names on this, guess what? They're Japanese. So this must be what, you know, back to that theme of, hey, I don't think these Japanese cartoons are for kids. Just to back up, so you went in 1978, you saw Battle of the Planets. Yes. And so since you were, uh, as of the time of this recording coming out, Tim Eldridge's interview with you is going to be up on Cosmo DNA at our Star Blazers. I guess, you know, we don't expect everyone listening to this who've heard that interview. But how did you go from putting two and two together, figuring out that Battle of Planets, Speed Racer, they're both these Japanese Tatsunoko productions to uh, actually finding out like anime is a thing being in this wildly different bit of pop culture than what we know from here. Well, with Battle of the Planets, a lot of it was, well, it's got Tatsunoko's name on it at the end, so we could kind of link it that way. And from the character design, I had thought there was some link with Speed Racer because there had been nothing like that of that design previously that I'd ever seen. And so it just that look just kind of brands itself. You know, it's just like Bugs Bunny cartoons where you look at a Bugs Bunny and can know, okay, which director was this just by the design? We used to have a game of that to just guess who the director was from the design. Like how old would you have been where you guys were trying to figure out who was the director of the Looney Tunes shorts that you were watching? I think that was about 1977, 76 or 77. Because that was about the time I started to get an allowance. And so I started to go out and want to buy books. I'd be buying books on time payments at the bookstore. And there were some very interesting books out at the time about history of Warner Brothers cartoons. Like Joe Adamson's Tex Avery, King of Cartoons. Joe Adamson, he's just an awesome writer. If I could write like anyone, I want to write like Joe Adamson. And the Joe Adamson book, but there are also books in the library. But animation history, like American animation history, there wasn't a lot in print, so you'd really just seek out whatever you could find. And then for anime, the only thing you had to go on at that point, or I guess suppose was the English translated credits at the end of the shows. Yes. How did you then take that to find more information and maybe link up with other fans at this point? The Battle of the Planets, I was kind of embarrassed. I mean, like in the second grade, we'd talk about Kimba, or the kids would talk and I would listen. But by the time of Battle of the Planets, I was just starting high school. 
And I was kind of embarrassed to talk about, yeah, I'm watching this uh, Bad Little Planet show. It's really cool. There was really nobody that I felt comfortable talking about that with. But there were a lot of publications coming out. There was Starlog. Starlog, I don't recall, had anything about Bad Little Planets. But in response to Star Wars, there was a wave of publications coming out. You know, some of them kind of fly-by-night, you know, pulpy things that you can buy down at the party store on the newsstand. And there was a mention of Battle of the Planets in there. And I was so thrilled. It was just an overview of science fiction on TV, you know. And they mentioned Battle of the Planets. And they had kind of a half-page, I guess it was about a half-page image of the Phoenix. They called it the Starship Phoenix. And that just kind of legitimized it. It's like, wow, it's a starship. It's not just a cartoon. It's the starship phoenix. Somebody is giving it respect. Wow, you know, I maybe don't feel so silly for watching this now. But really, it was with Star Blazers that things started to get a little more print acknowledgement. But with Battle of the Planets, I was in kind of full-blown, find what you can find. What is there to find out about this? And... In my first year in high school, you could rearrange your schedule. And so I rearranged my schedule to be able to watch Battle of the Planets in the morning (laughs) before coming on in. They would show Tom and Jerry first and then Battle of the Planets. So that way I could kind of watch older MGM cartoons, too, because they would show a droopy or a various Tex Avery thing as kind of the middle spot between two Tom and Jerry's. And then watch Battle of the Planets and then hop on the bike and go like crazy to get to school in time. That year, I was taking a drama class, and he would take pages out of Variety magazine and stick them on the bulletin board, our teacher would. And one of these (laughs) happened to be an ad that mentioned Galaxy Express 3.9 being for sale as a TV series. And I like wait till everybody's out of the classroom and I go over and take a closer look. It's like, wow, that's a Japanese cartoon. It's in Variety. I gotta check this out. Maybe I can find out more about Japanese cartoons in variety of all places. It turns out it was in their international edition and they would print a couple of those a year. And so uh, our city library carried variety. So I would go back to the older issues. And I found a page in there. They would, in the international edition, they would have sections by country. And so in the Japanese section, they had ads from Toei selling Compatler V and Dymos and Magic Tickle and Then they had a page from Modern Programs, and Modern Programs was selling Fireman, which was a live-action thing, and Space Cruiser Yamato. It was just a little kind of cut out with scissors, all jaggedy kind of image just kind of stuck on there to go with this ad. But it said in English, she must return in one year from the journey of all these light years, you know, the mission was grave for Space Cruiser Yamato. And it's a picture of the ship which looked to me like a giant space submarine, and a picture of Starsha's head. And when they say she must return, I'm thinking, oh, there's this lady, and she's trying to get back to Earth on this space submarine. Huh, those Japanese have really weird ideas, man. But it was for sale by a fellow named Ken Fujitsu. I just kind of filed it away, like, okay, he's selling this stuff, and Toei is selling this stuff. But later on, oh, I guess this was coming into the summer, of that next year. Which is 1979? Yeah, I would have seen it in 78. And so in 79, during the summer, WGN in Chicago started to run commercials for a show that was going to start in the fall called Star Blazers. And I'm like, wait a minute, that lady that just went across the screen, that looks like the lady. And that's that space submarine. Wow. It was just kind of neat seeing this was for sale at one point, and now it's come to fruition. It's going to be on TV. 
But is that really it? Because they aren't calling it Space Cruiser Yamato, they're calling it Star Blazers. So I tuned in, and at the end, they come across the Hulk of the Yamato, and I'm like, yay, that's it, that's it. Maybe it was part of having seen it from the seeds of it being for sale. And also, I had read some reviews in Variety about the movie. They had not liked the movie all that well. But still, in the kind of pulpy publications, they would mention how, oh yeah, in Japan, this is really popular, the Space Cruiser Yamato. But they didn't tell you a whole lot about it. Except one wrote that it was kind of Japan trying to offload its guilt about the war. And it's like, yeah, 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 it's a cartoon, come on. But yeah, I was really sucked into it. And this is before you've even seen the show. You haven't seen one episode at this point. I had seen the first episode. When the first episode confirmed that it was Space Cruiser Yamato, then I was watching it all the time. Until then, I would just kind of read about everything I could with no particular interest of, gee, I hope to see that someday. Except Combattler V. (laughs) Of all things, Combattler V had a full-page ad in Variety. And... uh, It was this black and white, ink comes off on your fingers, page, and I was really bad. I razored it out of the issue. I had to check out the issue, take it home, and I razored it out. They're just so captivated with this robot. It was this alien Japanese robot. Wow, someday I want to see this. And I tacked it to my wall. To this date, I've never seen all of Combattler V. <laughs> but someday I will see the whole thing. But yeah, I was just kind of reading about everything. And then when Yamato started to air as Star Blazers, then it was full focus. Because then you could see it. Battle of the Planets, I guess because there were so many recognizable voices, and there was such a dichotomy between here's certain animation and here's Seven Zark Seven. And then here's where they're playing ping pong and, and playing guitars and eating space burgers. That looks much different from the other stuff. So that just kind of had a sense of we aren't learning the whole story. And why is there all this different animation? Did they take an episode and spread it out over two? so they could have more to work with or what later on i learned it's because so much had to be cut out because of things they could not show us delicate children but any other was casey Kasem, and so i just thought well this is a japanese thing and it's been americanized but with star blazers it was more like this is it i guess because i'd read about it first and knew it was something japanese and it was popular and why was it why was it and now you could actually experience it i really enjoyed the characters i loved the story the music. The music in Battle of the Planets had been impressive, too. I used to audio tape episodes off TV on my little, you know, cassette recorder. You stick it up to the TV speaker. And yeah, then, you probably didn't have a VCR at this point. Yeah, they were out there. You'd read about them, but they cost thousands of dollars. And maybe someday in the future, but certainly couldn't. You could just audio tape them with a stupid little cassette recorder and then listen to it at night with the earphones in, you know, with a little chintzy earplug stick it in your ear and get under the covers to be sure nobody knows that you're listening to this. Battle of the Planets, just the, the music. Oh, it was just epic. You know, the characters, and it was just, and the design was so different from anything. The character design, which changed drastically from episode to episode. So then you'd start to think, okay, well, this episode and this episode must have been animated by the same group. But why does that look so different from these other ones? So then you kind of wonder about how was this made? It fascinates me that even back then you could tell that something was off with the show when Seven's Arc 7 and such showed up. Oh, they looked entirely different. What really gave it away was when Mark and Princess would come in to talk with Seven's Arc 7 because they were just drawn so entirely differently and just kind of stilted a lot when they walk in. Hmm. But the design was just so different. And like the scenes where they're in their ready room, when they're playing ping pong, they're drawn just entirely different. There's variations within the Tatsunoko footage, too, 
of how characters are drawn, but nothing like they're just so off and so undetailed in the Seven Dark Seven. So this is Michigan still where you are yes. at the time. And yes. So when you watched Star Blazers as it was coming out, that was every weekday? Uh-huh, that would air every weekday, and I was watching it on WGN. But then our local channel, WUHQ, I was in Battle Creek, Michigan, WUHQ started to show it. And I forget why I switched from one to the other. But WGN was airing it in the morning. And I think just I wasn't able to get up and missed a couple episodes. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to follow it on WUHQ when I get home from school. And so I was watching it WUHQ. And then one time I got up early enough and said, oh, what the heck, I'm going to watch it on WGN this morning and turned it on. And it was entirely different. They had been about to get to Iskandar on WUHQ. And on WGN, suddenly they're back on Earth. They're all in military outfits. And Wildstar and Sandor are meeting with the Cosmo Navy Mucky Mucks about mothballing the Argo. But they were about to get to Iskandar. And they look entirely different in this, too. What happened? So that was really confusing. But later on, I learned, oh, it's because there's the Iskandar story, and that was the first series. And then after that, there's the Yamato 2 series. To suddenly find that, come in in the start of the second series without having seen the completion of the first, that was a little bit confusing. Yeah, it was all a process of discovery. I learned later that there were folks in California who were up on things, like with, you know, CFO Los Angeles and all that. How did you find out about them? Oh, well, I actually learned about that after I went, I went to University of Michigan, and when I first got there, there was a comic book shop called Ayavagamoto, and I don't know the name of the fellow who ran it, or I don't remember it. But Stephen Strange? Yeah! Wait, no, no, no. I no, knew no. it. I knew it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> but he, when I walked in there, he asked, and I was real impressed with this, and this has never happened in any other comic shop that I've walked into. He asked what I was into. So I spoke a little bit about what I was hoping to find. Because up to that point, I was reading Marvel comics. I loved Howard the Duck. I'm just weird that way. Fantastic Four and Marvel 2-in-1, because the thing is awesome. So he asked what I was into. And then he recommended Cerebus and ElfQuest. And so uh, I'm like, yeah, I'll check those out. And really enjoyed both. And then he said, I have something that I think you're going to like in the back. Let me go get it. And he came back with an issue of Fanfare, which had a cover feature it had Captain Harlock on the cover. I'd known Captain Harlock from when I'd gone to uh, Japan as an exchange student. You just like skipped over like the really important part of like, I was trying to figure out like, how did you get to Japan? <laughs> from you're watching Star Blazers and figuring it out and the next thing you're in Japan. Yeah, yeah. That's well, a vital mission. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, well, let's see, let's rewind a bit. So I was junior in high school and I'm loving Star Blazers. I'm taking pictures off the screen because I'm like, once the show is over, it's going to be gone. You don't have a way to record it. All you can do is preserve what you can see in front of you. So I'm like making audio tapes of every episode. And then I'm taking pictures, black and white pictures. with my fine black and white Tri-X film taking pictures off the screen so that I have something to remember these episodes by. Because when the show is over, it's going to be gone. You're never going to get to see this thing again. I'm trying to preserve what I can. There was a program called Youth for Understanding. They came to our school to give a presentation, and you could go spend the summer in a different country. And so I really desperately wanted to go to Japan. 
and you had to have a second choice too in, in case your first choice didn't work out. So I'm like, oh, okay, Australia. Because a standard bread that I really liked was recently retired to go to stud in Australia. So it's like, okay, if I can't go to Japan, I'll go to Australia. And so the, the reason that you wanted to go to Japan was over the animation that you were watching? Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted desperately to find out more. And that would be the place to do it. That just seemed like that would be such a wonderland where you could just go and be in the midst of it, see it happening real time on Japanese TV, find out what life was like there that this had come from. What is it in Japan that makes it possible for these animated series to be made that have this adventure and these characters and they bring it over into such like a fascinating whole that we just weren't seeing anything like that being produced in America. And so I just wanted to find out the world that this was coming from. So I guess you got your first choice. Yes. You're in high school still and you go to Japan. You've still yet to meet any other anime fans in the United States at this point, right. but you're in Japan. Right. I've never spoken with anybody about Japanese animation at all, except my brother. He would watch them with me. So we'd enjoy them together. But past that, I don't know whether he, he wasn't as much into it as I was. I don't know if he discussed it with his friends. I don't recall ever asking him, but I know I was kind of ashamed of what I was doing because it's a cartoon. I'm in high school. I shouldn't be watching cartoons, but it was just feeding some need that I had. How did you sell this to your parents that you were going to go to Japan? Did you have like another reason other than I want to watch cartoons to give them? Well, my mom had left some years before and my dad was raising me and my brother. My dad was city editor of the newspaper. And he worked long hours, so he did not know that <laughs> I'm there watching cartoons every day after work, running home as quick as I can uh, after school, I mean, dashing home as quick as I can, taking pictures off the screen. I could do that because he was not there to see me doing it. Otherwise, I would have some splaining to do. So he was unaware. But to go to Japan, he was a sharp guy. I'm sure he knew that I was doing something with the cartoons. <laughs> but I'm sure I didn't say Dad, I think the cartoons are really awesome. I want to find out more. I'm sure I didn't say that. I think I must have said something about Japan is really neat and it's far away. And I'm sure it would be a wonderful character building experience to go and see Japan. <laughs> I, I don't think I said anything to him about the cartoons. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. So you go to Japan and you presumably don't know any Japanese. And right. I guess you get set up with a host family and all that. How is that in the late 1970s, early 1980s or thereabouts? Yeah, this was the summer of 1980. And first they had us go to Stanford University. We had a week of orientation. So we got to learn some basic greetings. And then we went on over. Everybody pretty much knew who their host families were, except a couple of us. I did not know who my host family was. And they said we would find out when we got there. So first we fly into Tokyo. <laughs> Let me tell you a little bit first about when I came into Tokyo. Came into Tokyo and we've gone through customs and we're walking through the lobby to head out onto buses. And we pass this like bookstore and there was a stack of manga and they're like the size of phone books. Wow, that's a Japanese comic book. I didn't know they were called manga then. It's a Japanese comic book. <laughs> Wow, I can't wait to see what's inside one of those. That looks so great. It turns out it was an issue of Shonen Jump, and I was later able to get that issue. I just always keep that aside. I actually keep it in a black bag so I can't see the cover. And every so often I just take it out and say, this was my first look at manga. And go, wow, and soak it in and then put it back away. 
What was the cover of that one? Uh, what was his name? Yamazaki Ginjiro, I think was his name. And it was done by... What is his name? I am probably wrong, but I'm going to say Hiramatsu Shinji? Hiramatsu someone, maybe? I'm probably wrong. But the name of the manga itself was Yamazaki Ginjiro. And it was some tough school delinquent kid, you know, and he's standing there kind of slouched in his black school uniform with a shirt opened up, insolent style, and just kind of like his cap askew, and he's just kind of giving you this, yeah, what look. So, uh, yeah, uh, the guy that drew it, I think Hiramatsu is his name. He later did like Black Angels. It was another manga from the 80s. It was all that 80s. What did we know? Yeah, so that was the first manga I saw. So in the airport, you see uh, Yamazaki Genjiro, the manga for that. And then uh, you're quickly shuffled along to get out of customs. We get on the bus. We go over to the hotel. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to have this great welcome dinner. Come on, everybody. We're going to have a big welcome dinner. And I'm like, we're in a hotel and there's like TVs in the rooms. I'm like, oh, I, I don't feel very well. So do you think it might be okay if I just go to my room for a while? And they're like, yeah, sure, yeah, we'll go on up. And it was three people to a room. And so the other two are off to the welcome dinner. I wait till everybody's good and gone. And I turn on the TV. The first thing I see is, it turns out, it's this manga artist, and he's, he's drawing. Well, I skipped over an important part here, but he's drawing, and I realize that what he's drawing is Ashtano Joe. And I know that it's Ashtano Joe because, remember back when I was saying I was trying to find anything I could to read about? Mm-hmm. There was mm-hmm. a book that came out. It was called The World Encyclopedia of Comics. It was edited by Maurice Horn. And... They had like a little flyer to advertise it that I'd seen in a bookstore. And they showed a picture of Astro Boy on there. And I'm like, ah, I can find out more. And it was this big, huge book. I think it was about 60 bucks. Could have been 6000 for me. Well, there was no way I could plunk down that kind of money. That was unthinkable. But I babysat all summer. The book had not come out yet. And so there would be time to save for it. And so I babysat all summer to raise the funds to get this book. That was 1977. That was before Gotcha Man, uh, before I saw Bad Little Planets. Or was it? Let me think. No, it was about the time that Bad Little Planets was coming out. Because I, I'd gotten all hepped up on finding out more about, really rubbed up about more about Japanese animation once I saw Battle of the Planets. So it must have been during then. And I was raising the money and I got, so it was probably about 78, 77, 78 got that book and was able to read about so many Tezuka things, some Sanpei Shirato things, and Shotaro Ishinomori, and Ashitano Joe, Tetsuya Chiba's, and Asao Takamori's Ashitano Joe, which they translated as Joe who aims to win wonderful tomorrow. Uh, yeah, no. Not at all clunky, very easy, rolls off the tongue. Yeah, and Fred Schott had written the entries on Japanese manga in there. It was a compilation of things from various countries, different comics, and just Maurice Horse and Horn had edited it. And so Fred Schott, that was the first thing I'd ever read by Fred Schott, was all these various entries about various famous Japanese manga. So I was kind of up to speed on at least the general plot of Ashitano Joe and what it looked like because there was a sample panel shown in that book. So I recognized that when I turned on the TV. Oh, here's this guy. He's drawing. I wonder if he's a comic artist. Oh, look, it's Ashitano Joe. Joe who aims to win Wonderful Tomorrow. Awesome. Wow, I recognized that. So that ends, and I kind of flip around channels. And 
a robot series comes on. So you're actually lucky that anime was actually on television at the time. It was on about six o'clock in the afternoon, six, seven. At that time, I had read about robot series from some things that Fred Patton had written, like for Starlog. There'd been mentions of various super robots in there. So I'd read about Mazinger and, you know, Get a Robo and things that had been writing that he'd mentioned in that Starlog article about robots. And so it's a robot. I'm like, wow, because I'd never heard a robot theme song. So I'm like, wow, I'm going to get here what a robot theme song sounds like. And I imagined it would be like a Sousa march. And it wasn't. It was uh, Uchu Senshi Barudeos. And it turned out it was the very first episode. Oh, so you got to see the, the king die. <laughs> Yeah, and I'd never seen anyone die before in Star Blazers. You know, there's Nox got out right behind you, but I'd never actually seen anyone die. And yeah, just like that. I mean, the, the king dies and then, you know, Marine freaks out because he's freaked out about his dad and he throws, he rips off this piece of metal and he throws it and kills Midan, who's Aphrodite's younger brother, with this piece of metal just dagged into his throat by accident. Marine didn't mean to. He's a hero. And I'm like, oh my god, a character just died! I've never seen anything like that. And the theme song was just this very lyrical ballad. Turned out it was written by Ken Taro Haneda. Later did, like, the Macross music. But uh, definitely not a Sousa march, and characters were dying. And in the end, Marine gets chased into this other dimension, and he winds up on Earth, and he winds up on the moon. In the episodes to come, he gets captured by Earth, and he's this, this confused kid. And Earth looks just like the planet he came from, but it's all different. I just kind of started to associate with that, because here I was in Japan, it looks a lot like where I came from, but I can't understand a lot of what is going on. But you were able just to visually discern <laughs> that the storyline that was unfolding was this guy is from one place and is now transported to this other foreign land, even though you didn't really understand the Japanese. They make it pretty clear. And I would write down words that I didn't understand. And I would go and look them up in my dictionary afterwards. So I did not have a perfect understanding of it. But yeah, I could figure out that he definitely warps through this weird time thing, through this weird space thing. He lines up on the moon. And then these Earth forces capture him, you know, and they're treating him pretty rough. In the meantime, Aphrodite has chased him that way, and she's trying to get him too. So when neither side seems to want him, I didn't have a perfect understanding, but, you know, I could figure out that much. At what point did they bust in on you in the hotel room watching TV? <laughs> oh, gosh. I'd, and be I'd, like, nerd! <laughs> <laughs> I watched, watched the Baldios episode. I watched a loop on the third episode. Oh. That was my opening. They steal a car out of the middle of a train. <laughs> It was really something. And it wasn't robots. It wasn't heroes. It's just this gang of people. And they go out and they pull this theft. And I was like, wow, I didn't know things like this existed. And then there was something cutesy. And I don't remember what it was. It was just cutesy. It was a little elfy, cutesy poo thing. And I'm like, what? In retrospect, I think it may have been Belfie and Lilliput or something. And it's like, well, I, I don't know about this. And I was pretty tired by then, so I turned off the TV went to bed and after that people came in so i was able to avoid getting caught oh you got away so, with it clean <laughs> but baldios and lupon were a good start there and ashton ojo seeing a little snatch of that after that we got put on a train the next day went on to shinkansen went across the country to osaka and in osaka we're all just standing there waiting for our names to be called and then people would come out of the crowd to come and collect us 
So my name finally got called. A college-age kid comes over and gets me, takes me over to the mother and father, the Kusunoki family. It was the mother, father, and college-age son and older daughter. She was older than him. They took me on back to the town of Tondabayashi, a little bit south of Osaka, famous for having a place called the PL Tower. There's this religious sect or something. I didn't find out a lot about it, where they've just built this kind of jaggedy concrete tower, and it's the peace and love. So they took me to see that, and I'm like, yeah, peace and love. Yeah, we're all for that. And they asked me what I was into, and I took the chance, and I actually said out loud to someone other than my brother, I really like this space battleship. It's a space battleship, and I think it's called the Yamato or something. And I'd really like to find out more about that. I like cartoons. I hope that's okay. So uh, they asked me more about America, and they knew I played piano. So they had a piano, and they made me play piano for, it seemed like, a couple hours. I would play, and they'd say, great, play more. And I'd play more, and they'd say, great, play more. And I just played and played. They kept asking. I don't know if it was to get me over a certain amount of time to help me get over the jet lag or what, but finally they let me go to bed. And the next morning... I woke up and they said, we have a present for you. And it was an issue of Animage. It had Harlock on the cover. The uh, July 1980 issue of Animage. And it was a feature on Reiji Matsumoto. That was my first exposure to anything that he'd done other than Yamato, because there was nothing about his work in the World Encyclopedia of Comics. Now, how much of this were you actually able to read, since Animage is not exactly uh, the easiest <laughs> magazine to understand if you don't know any Japanese? What little English was in there was burned into my brain because they had strange English titles for articles like Looking for the Wild Kitty Land. (laughs) (laughs) Looking for the Wild Kitty Land was the title of an article on a series that was airing then called Tom Sawyer. Hmm. So it was like, huh. The things like that just kind of burn themselves into your brain. So yeah, there was not much English. I had a little dictionary, and they had started us in the orientation, that week-long orientation at Stanford, on learning hiragana and katakana. So I could read the hiragana, could read the katakana, and I could not tell you a lick of what it meant. (laughs) But I could read it to you out loud. So I could recognize Yamato. Yamato, Yamato, and then I would kind of sound out these other things. Haroku. Okay, and then <laughs> kanji, 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 nine, nine, nine. Uh, <laughs> oh, I know what that's like. That's kind of like my level of Japanese, where you're just like, okay, well, let me skip all this stuff that I can't read and <laughs> figure out every like 20th thing. <laughs> but it gets to a point where your eye will start to recognize the shape of the kanji. Mm-hmm. And what I kind of found with the furigana was like I started buying manga too and the manga would have little furigana which told you how to read the kanji and after a while if you look at that enough after a while when you get to the point where they remove the safety net of the furigana then sometimes your mind will just kind of supply the reading because you've seen it so often that now even though the furigana isn't there it just kind of pops into mind yeah this was the reading for that but I guess it takes long, long looks at manga and just, I would be in my room and my host family, I would be up in my room and I would be just reading these things, kind of read them out loud quietly to myself, but not know what they meant, but just to practice reading. So they gave me the Animage issue and I was just trying to puzzle out more and they had a little mention in there in the section about Yamato as part of the Matsumoto thing that there was going to be a movie. I assumed it was a movie because they had a date 
on it. So I would go and ask my host brothers, what is this? And his English was quite good. And he explained, yeah, this is this movie. It's going to start August 2nd. And it had characters in there. It was some characters, some Yamato characters that I knew, but there were others that I didn't recognize. I'm like, wow, a Yamato movie. Can we see it, please, please? And this was probably around July 1st or 2nd. It's going to start August 2nd. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, we can do that. So I'm like, oh, yeah, you're going to get to do that. And then we went to the store. We thought they'd take me out shopping. We went to a place called Daie. Daie is kind of like a big discount department store, but it also has smaller shops inside it. And so their bookstore was inside the actual Daie, but it was owned by somebody else. It was like a different store. They had a toy store and they had a record store. Hmm. And so I go to the bookstore first because, man, I want to find books. And I found what turned out to be a novelization. It was a hardback novelization, three-book novelization of Yamato. And my host brother was like, wait, but you can't read that. And I'm like, yeah, but I want to learn. I want to learn. There's no Furigana in there. I didn't even know what Furigana were then. But it's like a novel of it. What could be better? The whole story, and it's written out. Someday, someday, if I work at it hard enough, I can read it. So they're like, okay. You know, we buy the books. And then uh, there's a record store. I spot right near the opening of the record store, there's a spin rack, the metal rack with metal branches coming off of it. And on it were picture discs. They were in kind of like clear plastic bags and they're hanging on this spinny thing. And I saw a Yamato disc. I'm like, what's that? I'm like, oh, it's a Yamato record. And wow. So I go over and I grabbed it off the rack and got the Yamato on the front, and you turn it over, and there's Wildstar Nova on the other side. And I'm like, wow, what is this? And they're like, it's the theme song. Wow, I wonder if that theme song is like the American theme song. Huh. So I'm going to buy that. Somehow it got discovered that there were other, I forget whether my host brother found them or whether the store person was like, yeah, we've got more, you know. He took me to the Yamato Records section, and there were probably a dozen different Yamato Records I wanted desperately to get them and hear them. But the trouble was I had like $200 spending money. That was it. For the entire trip. Yes. I was only there two months, but I had $200 and that was not going to go far. What helped it go farther was at that point, the yen to the dollar was about 230 yen to the dollar. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it helped it go a lot further. And so basically, I would just look at a price for something. If it was 2,300 yen, I would basically figure, okay, it's half that in US dollars. So, you know, 2,300 yen thing is about 12 bucks American, which was more than a record tended to be, but still, I wanted it. But I can only really afford to get a few. So I got like three records. One was Symphonic Suite Yamato, and one was the soundtrack to a Riveter Yamato. And the third one was the Disco Yamato thing, so that was kind of frightening. And they gave me a poster for the upcoming movie, and it was great. And so I went back to the house, and I played the picture disc, and it had lyrics with it. So I wanted to see if I could follow along the lyrics as I listened to it. And the opening theme was the same theme song, the same melody as in the American Star Blazers, but it was just so cool. It was one person singing with backup instead of a chorus of people like they did in Star Blazers. And just this powerful voice. I mean, I was used to hearing a powerful voice like that from a chorus of people. But for it to come out of one person, that was really neat. And then the end theme was something that you'd heard as an incidental medley in Star Blazers, but never the actual whole song. So that was just 
very interesting to hear, and I listened to it over and over and over because I was just captivated by it. For like a month before the movie comes out, you're listening to these albums. Yes, yeah. And they knew I was really gung-ho to see the movie. My host mother, who didn't speak English, called me into the kitchen one time very excitedly, and you turned on, and she's getting me over to the radio, and there's that same voice that sang the opening theme, and he's singing a new song. She said, yeah, it's from the new movie. It's going to come out. And I'm like, wow. So they were playing, you know, this was Hoshi no Pendanto. Uh, Iso Sasaki sang it. And so they played that at least a good couple weeks before the movie actually came out. The movie was coming up on the 2nd. But then the TV guide the week before had Yamato on the cover. So my host family was very excitedly showing me this. Look, look, Yamato on the cover. There's going to be a Yamato thing the day before the movie starts. So they were actually entertaining your interest in this. Yes. Yes, yeah. Well, as part of Youth for Understanding, we had to do a presentation. We were supposed to be gathering information to give a presentation when we got back. And so I decided to do mine on manga and anime. And so your host family kind of kept that in mind and kind of helped steer you toward certain things that might help. So that uh. they didn't have to. At the time, I thought they were just being nice. Afterwards, I started to think, well, maybe they had instructions to help me do that. I don't know. But they would take me to places where I could see things, you know, and... You know, they were very patient with me wanting to go to bookstores and record stores and toy stores and just see that kind of aspect. Anime wasn't really all that pop culture at the time. It was more toward kids in the junior high and high schoolers, but that was okay because I was a high schooler, so I qualified. But the thing they showed me in TV Guide was the day before the movie, which was Yamato Yotowani, or Be Forever Yamato, before that was going to start, the day before was a TV feature called, and it's very difficult to say, but it's Yamato Aratanaru Tabidachi, which is Yamato, the new voyage or the new journey. Mm -hmm. And it was a TV feature that had been done the previous year, but they were going to show it a second time because it goes right into the events of Be Forever Yamato. And it's a good thing I saw that because you have to go from Yamato 2 to Be Forever. There's all this that happens in between. These new characters introduced and things happen. I would have been completely lost in the movie. But thank goodness they re-aired the TV feature. And so uh, I was able to see that, you know, actually, yeah, some people that you think may have died in Star Blazers, but you weren't real sure. Yeah, they did. For me, it was a slightly different case because when I first saw the new voyage, I didn't see Be Forever Yamato for a little while later. So I was like, wow, this is kind of a letdown. This is the whole thing. Like, where's well, the rest? Yeah, yeah, waiting for the other shoe to drop. But yeah, so I was real lucky with the timing. And that kind of helped keep demand alive. The people would know, okay, well, here's the TV feature. And because things were at a slower pace back then, you maybe didn't expect more to happen immediately. So it's 1980, and uh -huh. you get to actually be in Japan for the theatrical premiere of yes. Be Forever Yamato. And yeah. we've seen like the documentary footage of all the pageantry and such that they would put into these premieres of these Yamato movies. What was it like where you were? I did get to go to Osaka to see it because there weren't any theaters in Tondabayashi. And so we went on up to Osaka and I really badly wanted to see the very first show. So they made sure I could do that because in Battle Creek, where I came from, that was a big deal to see the very first showing. And so we went to the first show. We got there a little early, lined up. It wasn't a huge, huge line, but it was uh, all the way down several flights of stairs. And there were programs for sale. You could buy a program. We got to sit in about the middle. There was a great big curtain over it. And finally, it's going to start. They open the curtains. There's the Yamato. It's huge. It's on a big screen. Boom. First thing you see is the Yamato. And it turns into 
a sausage. And it's a <laughs> flying through space, and it's a commercial for this make of sausages. <laughs> and you had no idea at the time that there were fans in America that would have given their right arm for your experience. I didn't know. I didn't know of anyone, and certainly nobody of my age. If anyone was watching it, they were probably more like my brother's age, and they would have thought I was quite foolish to do it. And huh. so uh, I was just thrilled to be there in the moment and that my host family was accepting of me, wanting to see this. I still felt kind of silly about it, but you know, you're in a different country, so you can kind of, not so much cut loose, but just nobody back home is gonna know I'm doing this. I'm here in Japan for two months. I wanna be a good cultural ambassador for the US. I don't wanna shake loose and be crazy and do terrible things, but I can kind of break apart from being embarrassed about it because I'm in Japan for two months. I'm never going to be back here again. I want to make a good impression on people I come into contact with, but I'm just going to forget being embarrassed and I'm going to enjoy being able to see Yamato and being able to see cartoons and walk around and see bookstores, buy comics. I was always kind of embarrassed even just to buy Marvel comics in the States. Yeah, I mean, I thought it was pretty fascinating that it was the only time a comic book employee ever asked you what you were into was like that one time. All those years ago. But I mean, as far as experiences go, to have the experience of actually seeing Be Forever Yamato, which is probably the one that benefits the most from actually seeing it in a theater because of the aspect ratio change. Yeah. And when that happened, oh my gosh. I mean, you're going through a very dark area of space. And then I heard the squeaking. And I'm like, wow, what is that? Is there mice? What? There's. And then there's this little tiny dot of white and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and boom! And you're in the, it was this double galaxy and you've gone through the dark area and you're into the white and boom! What the squeaking was, it was the sound of the curtains being drawn aside to widen the screen. But it's all dark so you don't really notice and you probably weren't supposed to hear squeaking, but it was Osaka, what you gonna do? And just boom! When the white arrives, Probably the reels change, and they switch the projector during that dark area, too. But when that white arrives, it fills that whole widened screen. I was just blinded. It was really impressive. The audience all just kind of gasped, too. We were all. I'm sure people had read about it in the magazines. I didn't understand what it meant. Talking about a, a, you can experience the warp dimension. I'm like, I don't know what that is. Let's see Yamato on the screen. That's the warp in itself. Come on. But whoosh, and everyone's kind of wow, 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 kind of chattering. The same happened when Dessler showed up on the screen. He wasn't actually a character in the movie, but when they're on the planet, and I can't think of his name, Scutterzant? I don't remember. But when that guy is showing them things that they've experienced, oh yeah, we know all about the Yamato, and here's things you went through, and they show Dessler as part of that kind of montage. Then there's this excited reaction from the audience, too. That and the warp dimension definitely got vocal responses. But past that, everybody was real quiet. It wasn't like that in you know theaters in the U.S. You would always kind of hear some noise going on. But everyone was so quiet, except for those two parts of the movie. And Sasha was in there. She was Alex Wilde's star, you know, Mamoru Kodai, and Starsha's daughter. She grew up very quickly being part Iskandarian, because they had to get them women up to speed real quick. She was the equivalent of 17 years old, and I was 17 years old. So I kind of, she became a favorite character of mine, so I was just really captivated with with Sasha. 
see this character that I really liked. And so, you know, once I got back to the States, that's the first character I ever cosplayed. Well, one of the first. So you get back from this tremendous Summer of Love tour of Yamato that you inadvertently stumbled into. Now that you're back in the States and resuming back from where we did the rewind portion. Can I tell you a little tiny bit about what was on TV at the time? I guess. <laughs> because what was what was really neat was not only were there the series that were airing weekly and they would start at about there were some channels that would start on the quarter hour so generally stuff would start about 6.45 and you see these weekly shows like I, I could see Gatchaman Fighter which was the third Gatchaman series and saw the character who was Chief Anderson die and that was another <laughs> shake up there too like oh my god they killed Chief Anderson but not only were there things in the evening but they also had things going during the afternoon. And I got to see such a wide variety of reruns. Just be able to watch on a daily basis Akakage, which was a live action thing. Yeah, Red Ninja. <laughs> that was neat. I liked that a lot. It was kind of like a ninja version of the 60s Batman almost. It was kind of that Adam West Batman in a lot of ways. That was neat. But not only that, there was Ashitano Joe, which was another series that I was just thunderstruck by. And I don't know if it's coincidence, but that was also animated by Mushi Pro, which had done Kimba. But that became my favorite anime show, and it still is. Just, hmm. it's powerful, raw stuff. The second series can't touch it. The first Ashton Ojo, was, it turned out that there had been a movie compilation. It was a series from about 1970, and they had put together a movie compilation that previous spring, and... Then they went on to do a second series that fall. But in the time in between, they reran the original series on a lot of stations. So I got to see about the first half of it. And just, that's still my favorite. But I also got to see Kyashan, the Tatsunoko mm -hmm. series. I got to see Kyashan. I got to see Ribbon no Kishi, Princess Knight. I got to see Attack Number One. I still wish that somebody would translate that one at some point, but I guess it's about volleyball, so good luck. It is. Well, you know, I was a high school kid watching that, and I was so inspired watching that. I'm like, I can't wait to get back. I'm going to join the volleyball team, man. I want to try to do these things. You know, I was on the softball and track team. I'd never played volleyball. But just watching this, I was like, wow, I really want to do that. And I guess I was at the age where... I don't know if it was a product or, or just that, it's hard to articulate about it, but about the times, like nowadays, oh yeah, Star of the Giants, oh yeah, Attack Number One, yeah, it was all, they get all fired up and they get all this guts, sports conjo thing going on and it was so campy, you know, and now you look back and now in Japan media, it is kind of played as a camp thing. If you see anything used for Star of the Giants in advertising, it's going to have a kind of camp bent to it. But if you were a kid at the time, you took it seriously. Mm -hmm. And I guess I was just a kid at the right time. And it just really speaks to you. I don't know if it's the same for kids who are elementary, junior high, high school kids today. Things have a little more ironic tone. I guess it was just uh, maybe a little more innocent time back in the 80s and 70s. I don't know. But just those things really spoke to me then. And so when you come back to the United States now, now you have a drive to sort of connect with other people. Like, uh, how, did, how did it come about the need to spread the Yamato gospel, etc.? Well, once I got to University of Michigan, then there was a science fiction club. And they were open to talking about things like that. And they wanted to learn more. 
So I told them what I knew, and we all wanted to find out more. There was the comic book shop by Avagamoto, and they gave me the issue of Fanfare. And that had addresses to write to. Wow, so I stayed up all night one night, and I'm dashing off addresses to CFO and, oh, what was the name of the one out of Chicago? The Japanese Fantasy Film Association, I think that might have been called. Various fan clubs and the Star Blazers fan club. So I just wrote to everybody and started to hear back from people. It was just really neat. We could correspond and then exchange phone numbers with some people, and so then we could call and talk to each other. I learned about the CFO chapter in Detroit. University of Michigan is in Ann Arbor. That wasn't real far from Detroit. So I could take a bus in most of the way. And then Rick Shaw, his name was really Rick Shaw, out of Southfield, he would come and pick me up. And they would have little meetings in his basement on his projection screen TV. It would be him, me, there was Dave Thomas, who was the president, and uh, Steve Johnson, I think was his name. He was the VP. So it would be just like four of us meeting in Rick's basement. And he would be trading for tapes. We'd be seeing Go Lion. Queen of a Thousand Years, those are the ones I mainly remember, some Dr. Slump, Captain Harlock, he had some taste of Devil Man, like from 72. So uh, yeah, Books in the Pond would do a mail order, and so I had a subscription to my anime magazine. I wanted to subscribe to Animage, but I could really only afford one because I was a starving college student, and Yuji Hidematsu recommended my anime because uh, he just mentioned features that were in there, but that included a Yamato 3 kind of uh, anime comic. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, I want to do that. I would get that each month and kind of read synopsis of, you know, it'd give you just very bare bones, couple lines about what the upcoming episodes of things would be about. So I'd be following along about Yamato 3 and Ashitano Joe 2. Then there was a convention. I was part of the University of Michigan's science fiction group, the Stilyagi Air Corps. There was a convention that they would help put on, and it was called Confusion. I went to Confusion and got to cosplay for the first time. I was cosplaying as Yayoi, who is the main right, character. from Queen Millennia. Yeah, from Sen and Joe, yeah. I wanted to do Sasha, but it was taking a while to make the costume, so I just There didn't. weren't a whole lot of people doing this at the conventions back then, were there? No, very, very, very few. And I, it wasn't my idea to do it. Just some, some friends of mine in Stilyagi were like, oh, we're going to make costumes. You should wear a costume, too. And I'm like, I don't know about that. And so uh, my friend Janice said, well, I'll make you one. And so she made the Yayoi costume for me. That was kind of fun. So then after that, I started working on my Sasha outfit and made my Sasha outfit. But yeah, we go to Confusion, and it turns out that there are people there who also know what Japanese animation is. And there was a group down from Canada. It was Mark Baskin and some friends of hers, and they had come down with a VCR and some videotapes. There was a little group that had come over from Grand Rapids, and that was Steve Harrison. I think it was probably just Steve that time. I met the rest of the group at a later con, but Steve had gone too. And Marg had had a kind of room party. This was kind of what you did back then was you would take a VCR to a place. And right, a the, the room party was, you know, you'd copy tapes for everybody. Exactly, there would be a chain of VCRs. They would all be connected to a TV, but the point of it was to sit and watch things, and the person whose room party it was would introduce you to various things. But you could also bring your VCR and hook it up. 
But back then, I didn't have one. I don't think Steve had one. But we were invited to her room, and she had to have the door open so people can come in if they like and just watch this Japanese animation. So uh, we saw Harlock and various things. And then the party was over. I went to go back to my room, and it was locked. And there were like 17 people staying in the room. <laughs> That's how I did it. We were all starving college students. And I was not a person with the key. And it was so late at night by the time the room party ended, I could not get into the room. So I'm kind of out there. And Steve is kind of out there. Steve Harrison out of Grand Rapids. And Steve had brought records with him because I guess he was trying to find out more. And, and a fast way to find other people was to, you've got records. So someone can instantly see you are carrying Japanese animation records. Hey, are we into the same thing? So Steve came and kept me company while I'm stranded out in the hallway overnight. So we sat and talked. We're looking at his records, and I'm, he was asking me to explain various things, and we would share thoughts about various things. So we just sat and discussed things, made fun of Geordie Venture. Yeah, so that was how I met Steve. After that, he would call every so often, and there was a con going on. What was it called? Capricorn, I think it was, in Chicago. So we went down to Capricorn, and I had a car by then. My car is a bungle. It was a Galaxy 400. You named your car as a bungle, just so I can get that detail correct. Okay. Yes. Uh, <laughs> we, had, we had gone, actually, before Capricorn, I had gone to the World Science Fiction Convention in Chicago. This is 1983 now, then, right? No, 82 was Chicago. This was 1982. And I got to go to the World Science Fiction Con because that was something I could never afford. But a friend of mine from Stilyagi couldn't go. And so I got to be her <laughs> at this convention somewhere in the stag. Took her badge. Yes, yes. So there, were, there was lots more Japanese animation going on down there, too. That was really exciting. And CFO was running a room. And they would show like Phoenix 2772. And they would show this new show that they had just gotten a tape for called Sento Mecca Zabungal. Zabunguru. And we all get to see for the first time ever in the U.S. So we're made very clear this is a world premiere. Zabungal. We get to see the first four episodes. That was just so neat. And I'm just focusing on what little I can understand being said. You know, and I would kind of explain to... Folks around me, what's going on? And I kind of explained as I could pick things up. I did that at CFO Detroit, too. Whatever I could pick up, I would share. But it wasn't subtitled or anything. It's just raw as a bungle. Loved it. Opening and end theme were so great. And, you know, the end where Chiron falls during the end theme, we would start doing a countdown for that. Yeah, so enjoyed Zabungle a lot. Met a lot of other people who were into it. After that was Capricorn in Chicago. I had gotten a car in the meantime and named it Zabungle because I really loved those episodes of Zabungle that I'd seen. Plus, this car was kind of like this powder blue with yellow hubcaps. It was Zabungle color. It had to be Zabungle. And in those days, you could have a vanity plate on the front of your car. You really needed only to have an actual license plate on the back of your car. We're allowed to do that in Florida also. Ah! So you got Zabungle for the front? Yes, yes. So it had a front plate with the name Zabungle on it. Yeah, Zabungle was an awesome car. It had been rusting in somebody's front yard. They sold it for 200 bucks. It needed a lot of work, but man, it had a V8 that could go like crazy. But it was so rusted underneath. And in the back, the trunk finally rusted out. So you <laughs> couldn't have anything in the trunk. Or it would fall <laughs> Jeez. Out. But in the end, the sides of the car started, it kind of came loose. 
from the side, <laughs> started to curl forward. You know, Zabunga would have those, the robot would have those wings kind of come out when it would <laughs> from vehicle mode into, so it was just fated to be, I think. So did it, it just finally fall apart while yeah. someone was driving it? Something happened in the engine, and the engine blew. We had it towed. I was driving back from New York City up to Buffalo. At the, I lived in Buffalo at that time. And it finally died on a trip between New York City back up to Buffalo. And so just finally had to scrap it. I was sort of hoping for some sort of dramatic uh, missile throw. (laughs) (laughs) But no, sadly. And there was no iron gear either. But, oh, well. (laughs) But, yeah, so we drove to Chicago with Steve Harrison and Jerry Fellows, who I met on that trip to Capricorn. So we were talking about Yamato. And it was such a shame that, you know, people didn't know the real Yamato. It was all Star Blazers, and there was just so much different. <laughs> that should be appreciated, actually, how close it was at the time. Right, uh, in comparison to most other things that were brought over. Exactly. And how do you define the different things that we see on the screen? What are explanations for some of the different things we see? And so we thought, wouldn't it be neat if there was a fanzine? That wasn't really my thought. That was Steve and Jerry's thought. And... They were very gung-ho to do this fan scene, and we would have like weekends at Steve's house where Jerry would come over and I would drive up, and we would be working on this. So they knew all the mechanics of how to put it together. I really didn't, but you know, I wanted to help get information out there because I would just get really irritated with misinformation that was out there. And I'm not sure irritated is the name, but just frustrated that there wasn't a way to you know, you don't want to say to someone, yeah, you're wrong about that. You know, I just wanted to say, well, actually, this is how it was in Japan. This is how the real version of this thing was. We thought a fan scene would be a good way to do it. So Steve and Jerry were doing the mechanics, and I would be writing on it, writing articles. So it came up at one point, just, you know, they were doing the mechanics, and I said, yeah, I'm just like the pencil sharpener. So they put that in the list of who did what. I get listed as pencil sharpener. So, yeah, that was... I had no idea that the thing would actually come out. I just gave them articles, and we would just get together on weekends, and the three of us, and talk about things, and watch videotapes, and make jokes about things, and make up new lyrics to the theme songs of shows we were watching. Jerry and Steve, especially Jerry, he was just so funny. He was so quick, and had such a great sense of humor. We'd be making up lyrics of these shows that we would watch. It was just so fun. Like the Ugly Robot Anthem from Briger. We can memorialize the lyrics here by, this was mostly Jerry and Steve came up with this. Was the lyrics to the show go, Jane, Jane, there Oh, yeah, we, we love the song. You know that? Oh, awesome. No, yeah, everyone knows that one. Do you really? Oh. Everyone listening to this knows that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, it all started in Steve's basement. Yeah, so that was. No, I was just so saying we fun. know the, the lyrics to to Briar, not the lyrics to the song that he rewrote. Oh, you don't know the lyrics to the. Oh, I thought you meant you knew the lyrics to the Ugly Robot. No, anthem. I wish oh, I knew no, the no. lyrics to that. I no, what are the, the Ugly Robot anthem? So we'll stomp them thin as a dime when we jump in our Ugly Robot Cosmo Ranger J9. And if it's not very far, we'll get there in our sports car, Bright Thunder, Bright Thunder. And we shoot below the hip in our mean nasty spaceship that we call Budai Sitar. And our secret base is in the asteroid with the wolf mark. And we're as mean as can be. Our robot's ugly. His chin <laughs> is pointy. 
That's how it goes. Okay, perfect. So <laughs> what we're going to do actually is we're going to, if I have the wherewithal to do it, I'll, I'll link people the video of the opening so they can sort of follow along with this and I can just sort of piece together you guys watching it on, you know, Nth Generation right. VHS tape and coming yeah. up with this. It's funny that you talk about that because at our meetings when our friends get together and we watch stuff, I can confirm that this is a thing that yep. people still do, although ours are somewhat less uh, sophisticated and more crude. But <laughs> Yep. <laughs> <laughs> That's what it's about, man. You know, it's full enjoyment of it. Yeah. Enjoy it. We may be blind to its faults. We are not. <laughs> you know, you got to have fun with it. So that was the first, uh, I guess, publication that you ended up working on that actually came out, the space fanzine uh, Yamato. Yeah, I had moved to Buffalo because there was no work in Michigan. So I had moved to Buffalo. And in the meantime, Steve and Jerry brought it out. And then uh, I was living with a pair of anime fans in Buffalo uh, named Linda Foner and Karen Clank. And they were big into writing fan fiction. And they would go to various science fiction conventions and sell things. And so we got to go to Capricorn, and they were deep into anime. They really liked Harlock, and they had a huge collection. Videotapes from Japan would be sent to them, and then they would run them over the border to Mark Baskin. So I got to see a whole lot of stuff. But we got down to Capricorn, and Steve and Jerry show up with Space Fans in Yamato as a surprise for me. They had not told me it was actually coming out, and they debuted it there. <laughs> it was just so exciting. There it is, actually in print. Now, was that primarily how you guys distributed the fanzine? Was that conventions, or did you do a lot of it via mail? I think mostly it was by mail. There were mm. ads for it run, like in the Star Blazers fandom report. I had done a lot of writing for that, too. Mm -hmm. There was an ad there. Mm, I'm not sure where else they advertised it. I don't know if they got as far as Starlog, but wherever they could get something into print, you know, maybe Science Fiction Club newsletters and stuff. Uh -huh. There was a CFO national newsletter at that time. I think it was also advertised there, maybe. But yeah, you would have to write in to get it. But events that they went to, uh, there was a Star Blazers mini-con that was part of a convention in Grand Rapids. Cannot think of the name of that con. It was basically a Star Trek con that the Star Trek club there had put on. But there was like a Yamato mini-con held there. That was probably about 82, so they sold it there, but mainly it was by mail. So that was the first book that we kind of all know that you worked on, and the second one was the one that you actually didn't have a copy of yourself until Anime Week in Atlanta. That's true. Oh, that was so sweet of Robert Gibson to give me that. That was so kind of him. Can you tell us about how that one came to be? And of course, we're talking about uh, the, the art of Robotech. Yeah, Robotech art to one. Well, I had done some magazine articles for a comics collector magazine. I'd met Maggie Thompson at the uh, San Diego Comic-Con in 1983. I was helping out with Melody Records at that time. I was helping staff their table just because they needed some help. And so uh, I could kind of help out by, you could actually play the records. They were playing the records, the samples for people, and just helping people find things. And, and Maggie Thompson came up when I was on a break and said, hey, can you tell me a little bit about this Japanese animation thing? And I said, yeah, sure. And so we kind of walked around the floor of the con, back when you could walk around the floor of the con instead of it being a packed wall-to-wall -wall kind of slowly inching stream of people. And uh, pointed some things out to her, showed her some popular things, just told her about anime and manga. And then she contacted me after that and said, uh, hey, I, would you be interested in writing some magazine articles? And I said, yeah, I'd be glad to. So I wrote an article about Yamato 
after that, she had me write another one, which was kind of an overview. Now, since it was Comics Collector, it needed to be manga-based, but manga-based popular anime of the time. Hmm. So I wrote an overview of, it was several pages, just a wide variety of things and tried to you know cover historically a lot of things. Did you just know a lot of this stuff or did you actually have to research some of it too? There were some things, like for example, I included things in there like Kamui Gaiden. Mm. Uh, oh, right. And how that and Dororo, how Tezuka's Dororo had pretty much gone head to head when they were animated. But I uh, had to research a little bit about the dates that that went on. Mm. And at that time, I mean, you couldn't just hop on the internet and find things out. I used to have a really big library of anything I could find historically wise about anime. Like Anime Age would have, you know, some historical things about, they would have features by studios. The studio, and then they did all these things. This studio, and they did all these things. There would be data books that would come out once a year, too, that would have, like, dates that things ran with major staff. So basically, I had a library of anime magazines, and I had tried to go back and buy as far back as I could, but I didn't have a real complete library, but just what articles were in there that was what my research was, was just hmm. things that had appeared earlier in, in Animage or in my anime or in data books that had complete credits for different series. Like This Is Animation had brought out like a yearbook for like 1983, so that was really useful for those things. I'd been hoping there'd be one of those every year, but I think they stopped after 84. But just basically things that were already in print or data books, that was what I had for research. Okay. Um, and so a lot of that was just my impressions of things and then with the data books. So that was for the Comics Collector magazine. From there, based on that, try to remember how I even got the call to do this. How did I get the call to do that? I think maybe Maggie Thompson possibly spoke with Kay Reynolds or Kay Reynolds was looking for someone to help out to do translations for this book that they were going to do called Robotech Art. So maybe she got the recommendation from Maggie Thompson, but I was contacted and asked if I could translate some pages out of the Macross Perfect Memory book. I'm like, yeah, sure, yeah, yeah. So I'm working on these translations, and when I was done with the translations, I was to send them to Fred Patton. Now, Fred was supposed to co-write the book with Kay Reynolds, so Kay Reynolds was writing episode synopsises of all the Robotech episodes, and Fred was supposed to do the part about the history of anime and the making of Macross, and also, you know, how that became Robotech. And so I was working on the translations, and Fred had commitments to go to the World Science Fiction Convention, which was going to be in Australia, and he was not going to have time to do it. And so me and Fred were on the phone one time, and he said, how about you write it? He said, I'm fine with that. Got all the translations. You know, I've read your stuff. I know you're fine to do it. And I'll send you what information I have about Streamline. Why don't you just put it together from there? If it's okay with Kay Reynolds. And so uh, he spoke with Kay and Kay said, okay, go for it. So I wrote it. The part that I wrote was just the part about the brief overview of the history of anime. And then from using the information that Fred supplied, how it was turned into Robotech. It's not the best thing ever. I liked the Comics Collector overview article a lot better. And that Robotech Art 1, I had to write that fairly shortly after I'd written the overview thing for Comics Collector magazine. So 
It just got yeah. hard because I had to do a lot of the same territory again. And mm-hmm. I just, first time you do it, it's like, yeah, I'm doing it. And the second time it's like, okay, yeah, I'm doing it. And that's really great because it's going to be in a book. And that, that's awesome that I'm going to be in a book. But I got to say a lot of the same thing and I have to do it in a different way. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just, so that was unfortunate. I just don't think that's my best work. I tried. I tried real hard, but. I just, you know, the first time you do it is the best. Well, we never would have expected all these years later that diehard fans of Robotech would be pouring over that book to this day and trying to piece it together, <laughs> take it apart as those people are wont to do. <laughs> but just as far as an art resource alone, it's still, uh, you know, highly sought after. Yeah, I got a few copies. There was a hardcover version of 10,000, so I had to sign a whole bunch of. You had to sign 10,000 of them? I wonder if it was 10,000. I'm probably remembering that wrong. It may have been 1,500. Probably, probably 15. just feels like 10,000. Yeah. <laughs> I had to sign all those book plates because wow. they were all signed. And so they supplied you a stack of book plates. And so you had to sign each one. So that was exciting. Yeah. So I had a few of the hardcovers and I gave those to family members. And I had give away some of my uh, soft covers too. And I had one. I guess I had two. And I had one in storage and I brought one to Japan. And I loaned it to someone, and I never saw it again. So I did not have one here. I have one in storage. I have a hardcover in storage. My dad passed away, and so uh, so I got that back. And so that is the one that I had. And so I didn't have one here at all. And so when Robert Gibson, I met him for the first time ever at Anime Weekend Atlanta this year, and he said, here, give this to a fan. And I'm like, wow, I, I don't have this myself. And he was like, wow, keep it for yourself. That was so kind of him. Now I want to know, from doing that in the United States, publishing this stuff about Yamato, then going to Robotech, which was, you know, another really big work, how now did you end up in Japan as, like, basically a permanent resident? I wanted to come back to Japan so badly, but... After I wrote Robotech Art 1, I was really burned out. I was really, really burned out. And a lot of people just kind of popped out of the woodwork and would say, Oh, oh, you drew the pictures in Robotech Art 1. Draw me a picture, draw me a picture. And I'm like, not draw. No, no, you got it wrong. Uh, so that was a laugh. Just kind of got burned out on all that and all the requests are people and wanted me to draw them pictures. So they saw that it was Art of Robotech and had your name on it. So they figured you were the person who drew the Art of Robotech. <laughs> Yeah, there were a lot of line drawings in there in the character places. I mean, in the section about the history of it, a lot of those were cells from my own collection. Oh, wow. Like uh, the Yamato one was mine. The uh, <laughs> I said, you have to have an Ashita no Joe cell in here. This is my signature. This is so that people know this is really me writing this. Please have this Ashita no Joe thing in there. So they did. So that, that was my, out of my collection, too. But everyone just thought that you were the greatest artist of all. Well, there were a lot of line drawing, a lot of character, a lot of sete drawings in there. And so I guess they just thought that I drew them. Oh, draw this for me. <laughs> draw midnight for me. So, no. Uh, so, yeah, I'm not a skilled artiste. I'm a writer, you know. I like to read up on what I can and then turn it around and write it as an article to try to help people share what's cool about it. And so, yeah, so I was heavily burned out. So I took a break and I got a job with Hoofbeats magazine. As I'd grown up helping out with a harness racing stable. I groomed uh, standard bred racehorses while I was growing up. So I went back to that. There was an opening at Hoofbeats, which is the monthly magazine of the U.S. Trotting Association. That's the governing body for harness racing in the States. 
And so uh, I got a job working for them. I subscribed the magazine through high school. And so uh, I was like, yeah, I get to go back and work for them. So I did that for 11 years. I didn't intend to do it for 11 years. I just wanted to get a break from things. And here was a chance to go back to something else that I knew. It would be a good break. Went there, did a lot of writing, learned a lot. I was writer and copy editor. And so, yeah, so then, well, I was going on with that, and I didn't intend to do it that long. But then suddenly, my dad died, and my dad had been 54. And there's a lot of things that he had always wanted to do, and he didn't get to do them. That just really struck home. I'm like, geez, you know, I'm, I'm here, I'm doing this, and I'm getting deeper and deeper and deeper into doing it. Time is going by, and, you know, I, I'm just there are other things that I think I'm supposed to be doing and I have to break away from this if I want to ever get to Japan I just figured oh I'll get there someday the someday is not getting here and the longer time goes by the more difficult it's going to be so I quit my job and I went back to school and then I got a job with the Suzuka Board of Education in Mie Prefecture that sounds like it's an extremely difficult thing to have happen it was very difficult, and it wasn't something that was building. It just kind of, he passed away, and I'm like, he didn't get to tomorrow. You know, he aims to win wonderful tomorrow, <laughs> but he didn't get there. And if I don't do something, I'm not going to get there either. And so it was very difficult to do, and it wasn't, it wasn't a decision that I made lightly. I had not been to Japan since 1980, but I thought, okay, I'm going to go to Japan, and I'm going to see what it's like, and I'm going to see if this is really something that I'm going to throw away everything I've done before. Be sure I want to do this. So I went to Japan with my friend James Long. He's a big Gatchaman fan out of California. He was also an Ashtono Joe fan, so we've been friends. Since we'd corresponded since way, way back, you know, since, uh, you know, 1982 or so. Not to be confused and, with the James Long we know, who's the editor of Giant Robot <laughs> magazine. No, no, I don't think so. I don't think so. Probably a couple decades uh, difference. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we went to Japan, we started in Osaka, saw the Mandarakes, beheld the wonder that is the Umeda Mandarake. Oh, my goodness. Went around Osaka, then went on to Tokyo, and it turned out that a friend of mine from the old days, Mary Kennard, she had moved to Japan some years before, and I had done a search online, just, I guess I was looking for places to go in Japan for the trip, and her name turned up being associated with Comic Box Magazine. So I'd written her and said, hey, we're going to go to Japan in December, and gee, it'd be great to see you again. And what year is this? This was 19... 97. My dad passed away in 96. And so uh, in 97, I, me and uh, James Long went over, were able to hook up with Mary Kennard in the Tokyo leg of it. And Mary took us to Comicate. So that was very eye-opening to go there and see that not only were these new doujinshi being done for, you know, new current things, but there were also fans of older things who were doing like uh -huh. data books. And so just, uh, you know, to keep the timeline right, you know, when you said you took a break, you know, you're talking about over a decade between time that you've really looked into this stuff. And now you go from a clean break to you're in the midst of Comicat. Yeah, yeah. I started at Hoofbeats in 1988. My dad passed away in 96. And so in 97, you know, it took some time to raise the money to be able to make this trip. And it also, I had to have everything written in advance. 
I had to have stuff done three months in advance. They made me have everything we done three months in advance to be able to make this trip to Japan. I think they didn't want me to make the trip. <laughs> but I got everything written, made the trip. This was the winter 1997 Comic-8 that Mary took us there. And, oh, wow. Wow. I think about most memorable from that trip was meeting the members of the Devil Man fan club. And huh. so uh, it, was, it was really something to be able to... Yeah, and they were all excited, too, you know, because here's someone who's, you know, from a different country, and they like the same things you like. Their Devil Man was a show from 72. <laughs> you know, it's my, it's my favorite manga, too. You know, Ashtano Joe's my favorite anime, but Devil Man is my favorite manga. So, 97, and, 98, there must have been a ton of, like, Ava stuff there at the time. Yes. Oh, yeah. And Gundam Wing. And, oh, right. Uh, yeah. Okay. Was, and Dagoon had taken off, too. I still don't know why. Aside <laughs> from... <laughs> Without apologies to Doug on. But uh, yeah, Cyber Formula was big then too. But yeah, in the on the old section, the old stuff, like the Cyber 009 books and the, the Tezuka books and the, there were Tatsunoko fans who were doing Tatsunoko data books. And there were people doing books about gathering information about anime songs. Just the, the data books aspect was very interesting. And just getting to sit and talk. The people who really wanted to talk were the members of the Devil Man fan club. They had me come back behind the table and sit and talk. And they were showing me things in the books and getting my comments on them. And what was really freaky was in the article that I did for Comics Collector Magazine, which was the overview one of things that had you know, started off as manga, I mentioned the Devil Man fan club years before I ever met them. Because I had noticed in one of the magazines, they have the list of doujinshi in the back that you can buy. And I had noticed that there was a Devil Man fan club in there. And mentioned how the year they were established and all. So in the article I mentioned, to this day, there's a Devil Man fan club. That was 1984. In 1997, I actually got to meet them. And in fact, once I moved to Japan, I became a member of the circle. And I helped sell at Comicate now when Devil Man Fan Club draws in in the lottery. So uh, that was that was cool. So yeah, so that was exciting and I realized, yeah, I definitely want to do this. And what cemented it was we went to an onsen. James Long kind of, you know, begged off going to the onsen. He didn't want to, didn't want to get naked with the ladies. So uh, just a group of us gals went up there. Mary had other friends visiting from overseas. Uh, Jen Johnson from uh, Canada and all and uh, Jean Dewey, and we had gone up to the Sonsen up in the mountains of Tochigi, and there's like a waterfall coming down, and it's all outdoor Rotemburos. And I'm sitting in this with the snow coming down, because it's like New Year's, and I'm sitting there in there, and I'm like, yeah, this is what I want to do. And it is going to be so, so hard to be able to shake loose from the harness racing, because I'm just so entrenched in it. But this is what I'm supposed to do. I have to remember, sitting here in the sun, I have to remember this resolve to do this. And I went back. I just started saving money, just started making preparations. I went back again in the summer of 98 and went back again in the winter of, of 98. I don't think I went back in the summer of 99. But I was you know, making preparations to cut loose. And then I asked Mary, I said, would it be okay if I stayed with you for a couple weeks at December of 99 just to be sure you know just to kind of you know see it again she's like oh yeah sure so I gave my notice at Hoofbeats and then I went and stayed with Mary in that December and then I came back and went to school and at Hoofbeats 
what was kind of neat was that year, an article that I wrote was nominated for the World Trotting Association Magazine Article of the Year. And it's kind of like the Olympic gold in harness racing journalism. I won. I actually won. It was it was really great. And the, another employee of Hoofbeats, he won photo of the year. And so they had a big presentation for us at Scioto Downs, which is major horse racing track in Ohio. And it was great. They had us down there and they presented us with the trophies and all. And the president of the U.S. Trotting Association gave it on behalf of the World Trotting Association. So I won the Olympic gold. So that was in the sport. So that's as it is. You know, it's harness racing. But still. It's still a good, like, a note to go out on. Exactly. Exactly. And then uh, I went back to school and almost immediately the job opening turned up in Suzuka. I'd been in school less than a year. And boom, there's this job opening. And I'm like, wow, do I go for it? How did you find out that the job openings open up out in a whole other country? Well, they have a program. I went to Ohio State. I went back to school at Ohio State University. They have a program where they supply candidates to two programs in Japan. One is in Funabashi, and the other is in Suzuka, and Suzuka and Mia Prefecture. Uh, Funabashi is in Chiba. So they send prospects the way of these two programs, if people want to go over and, and teach overseas and find out what that's like to teach in Japan. So uh, they have some sort of exclusive program going on with them. So I'm like, I'm sure I'm not qualified, but I'm just going to go ahead and submit a thing just so that they keep me in mind for the future. So I sent it off and boom, they have me interview for it. Wow, <laughs> this is sooner than I thought it would happen, but okay, I'll interview for it. And I got it. And so I moved to Japan in August of 2000. I quit my job at Hoofbeats in December 99. And in August of 2000, I moved to Japan. And I've been here ever since. It's amazing, but it's, it's, it's happened. Yeah, it's a hell of a story. It's just, uh, you know, one of those things where the basic narrative of this whole thing is that you have just an incredible resolve to get things done, a drive to actually acquire information, retain this stuff, and then disseminate it to other people. Now that you are in Japan, the job that opened up, is that the one that you've got now that everyone sort of sort of knows you for, or is this something else that you... <laughs> I had come over to uh, teach English for two years at, for the Suzuka Board of Education in Mie Prefecture. It's over by Nagoya. It's south of Nagoya. I was there two years. It was only a two-year position. But just as that was finishing up, I was hoping to find something else because I really didn't want to leave, but it was only a two-year position. But I didn't really want to go the teaching English for like Nova or anything route. If I had to, I would do it, but I didn't really want to. But just then, Steve Harrison wrote and he said, I noticed a job opening and I just thought, I'm sure you already know about it, but I just thought I would let you know, just in case, that Hobby Link Japan is hiring. Wow, Hobby Link Japan. I had not looked at their website in quite a while because I was already in Japan. Oh, I, th I, I thought it was you didn't look at the website because you didn't want to lose all your money. <laughs> that. That's but why see, I don't look at the website. I could go to Osaka and I could go to Nagoya very easily where I was. When I was still in Ohio, before I'd come to Japan, I had been a customer of Hobby Link Japan. I had gotten a Kamui doll, Ninja Kamui. So I'd ordered that from Hobby Link Japan, been very happy with them. Uh, but right after that, was when I was going to come over to Japan. So I'm like, well, okay, I'm, I can get the stuff in Japan myself. So I hadn't looked at them for a couple of years. 
So yeah, I followed Steve's link and there it was and they're hiring. So I, I send in an application and I get a phone call from Scott Hartz, who's the president of Populink Japan. And he said, you mentioned in there that uh, you came over in 1980 with the Youth for Understanding program. I'm like, mm-hmm. And he says, I was in that program too. <laughs> really? And I kind of recall then where we had, had to give the presentations I kind of recalled him then from he had been there with his dad. And so we had been in the same group. So he was like, wow, he was really fascinated with that. We chatted on the phone, and then he had me come over by Shinkansen to uh, actually go to Hobby Link, which was in Tatebayashi, Gunma at the time. It's now in, in Tochigi. He had me go and interview. Went great. He had a little test where you needed to be able to name a few of the Gundams. No problem. (laughs) What a job interview criteria. (laughs) Yeah, so I aced it. They had a welcome dinner that night. All the staff came out. It was a real small staff then. And so uh, we all went out to eat at a little izakaya. And then I had to grab the train on back. And that was very, very (laughs) all so sudden. And I was like, wow. Yeah, when I first went there for the interview... It was really fairly small then, and there was there's the warehouse, and then there was a kind of rickety second building, which was where the computer equipment was kept, and Scott's office was on the upper floor, and there was a squat toilet. So I have to go to the bathroom, so I go to the squat toilet, and I'm like, I'm using the bathroom at Hobby Link Japan. <laughs> wow. I squatted in awe. <laughs> yeah, so then I got the job. I worked in customer service. Later on, I was able to also start writing product commentary. And after a few years, then we outgrew that facility at Tatibayashi. Scott had an actual new warehouse built in Sano City, Tochigi, which is about a 20-minute drive away. We're kind of in the Texarkana here in Gunma in Tatibayashi. It's right by, there's Tochigi above, there's Ibaraki to the side, there's Saitama below, and then there's Gunma. There's a little tail of Gunma that sticks out. We're in the tip of that tail. And so he built the place in Sano City, which is about 20 minutes kind of northeast, about northeast-ish of it. And it's a great big warehouse, but we're running out of room there too because we have a program called Private Warehouse where people can have things stocked up, things they buy. They can have us hold on to it for 60 days so they can keep adding stuff to the pile and then ship it. And that takes up a lot of space. And so uh, we're looking at doing even an addition onto that warehouse. So, uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. So I had to get a car because I would rather stay in Tatebayashi because the way the train system works, Sano is not real convenient by train to get down to Tokyo. And I got to get down to Tokyo. We're about, Tokyo is about a little less than two hours by train from Tatebayashi and even longer from Sano. So I've stayed in Tatebayashi. They've got a place that's an old closed down fish store. You have kind of the fish store area for storage, and then it was kind of a restaurant attached to it. And so uh, that's the place where I live in the kind of restauranty place. On the subject of trains, I know you have a train to catch soon. I hope we're not running up against that. Let's see, it's about quarter to 12 now, and I need to leave by about quarter to two. So we're oh, Okay, I actually thought you had to leave like in, in 20 minutes or something. Oh, like no, that. no, no. I'm, I'm doing good. Got a couple hours. So Okay, great. I was curious. I found out about you through your website, your Anisong website. Oh, um, I haven't updated that in a long time. Oh, yeah, it's, got, it's in- still like the 1990s era HTML. It's great. <laughs> Yeah, and 
I love this. You were talking about all of the Anisong events that you'd gone to, and I was absolutely fascinated by these. Oh, um, that's great. You talked about this one in particular, and maybe it was uh, one of many, but this one uh, that was like a 24-hour event. Yes. Uh, that you went to, this some sort of challenge to get through so many different songs. It sounded amazing. It is an epic event. It's run by uh, Keisaku Kimura and Hinoki-san. What is his first name? Kazu, Kazu, Kazuyoshi, maybe? Well, his last name is Hinoki. Together, Kimura-san and Hinoki-san are a comedy group called Otaku Zake. It's kind of... It is an, uh, they have a thing called Otaku Zake. And in English, they kind of put that as the Fanboy Booze Brothers. And what they do is they put together medleys of opening and, and end themes of anime shows. <laughs> and then they count how many there are. And so they just play as many as they can in a 24 hour period. But what made this an Anison event is to help break things up, they have actual performers also appear. They have those appear early in the program so that people who want to see them can see them and then catch the last train out of there. The rest of us are in there for the duration. There's a group of places called Loft in Tokyo. It has various venues, so sometimes they have it, they have their smaller events at like Asagaya Loft. But this one, their big one, their 24-hour one, sometimes they'll have 12-hour ones, in English, they kind of, oh, wait a minute, I got a cat walking on the keyboard. Yeah, I actually thought when you were asking, I thought you were asking the cat. I think we just lost connection. Oh, yeah, Are I was there, about to say. See if we can get her back on the line. That's, the, the, this was getting important. It this is starting important. to, yeah, get, you know, pro. Um, <laughs> all right. Can't end on this note. Too important. That's right. I'm pretty sure the cat's responsible. <laughs> I'm pretty sure the cat hit like a hang up. I think we asked too much. The cat knew. <laughs> we were getting cats too know. close to the truth. Yeah, cats know this stuff. I, I, I live with them. They know. Mm. A cliffhanger ending of how we find out about the... <laughs> The terror of the Anisong event. We didn't even get to talk about the TV champion special. No, that was yeah. Or the fact that the the reason that she's got a train to catch is because she's got you know to get her her lessons from Miku. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. So Daryl, I presume I got that game from you on Steam because you want us to play it at some point. Well, yeah. I mean, like I, as a group. Yeah, I think we because uh, I got it for everybody basically. Okay. So was that the Nazi zombie? Part Maybe. two. It's it's the it's you know continuing the the storyline right of the, the Nazi zombie. Part one. How will we ever understand what's happening? You know the the saga of Sniper Elite is really complicated. I mean you know Sniper Elite three is actually in fact a uh, a prequel to the events of Sniper Elite two, uh, which you <laughs> the know most is ball busting a, game. Well yeah I mean it's also year. just the 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 deep narrative and characterization of uh you know Carl Fairburn <coughs> who uh the voice just sounds like when I'm trying to impersonate Dave Riley that's the voice of this guy <laughs> I got a gun I got to go shoot this dude he's a fucking asshole in the first place but I got my sniper rifle I'm going to take my sniper rifle I'm going to go here I'm going to shoot that guy <laughs> It sounds like you trying to impersonate Sylvester Stallone Well that's also my Dave Riley impersonation <laughs> <laughs> cliffhanger finale that uh, will maybe or maybe not be resolved at another date. 